you are actually not, as many people would think, Swede, and you're not Finn only, but you are actually born in the United States. You have a very cosmopolitan uh, work CV uh, with uh, dissertation studies in Geneva. You've been in Norway. Uh, so you have a, a, a global outlook, really. And, um, and you, have, you are exceptional in the way that you dared in the year 2010 and around those years, I should say, to publish studies about the future looking towards 2030, a long time, one would think, um, having a more problematic outlook towards uh, globalization and the effects of globalization, <laughs> the ex ex effects of the, of the foundations of security that you outline in a pyramid, um, both from the ecological base, the, the, the uh, societal base and the functional base for, for, for uh, how to create and develop security in a comprehensive way in the international system, where you say that the, the, the issue is not uh, how uh, you protect security, but what are the effects of security in terms of human suffering and so forth. And there we have many and, and you criticize explicitly the notion of hard and soft security, which I find uh, very interesting. You said in one podcast that I listened to that um, uh, there was a fallacy in the in the expectation that uh, the effects of soft security problems would be soft, so to say. They, they, could, be very, they could indeed be very lethal. And yeah. uh, this is uh, something I heard when I, I, even when I was an intern in the, Peace Research Institute in Oslo in the beginning of the 70s that people talked about um, what positive and negative peace meant uh, in terms of uh, actually mm -hmm. ongoing slaughter mm -hmm. of human life uh, through uh, uh, hunger and, and, and different scarcities. So what Michael and I supposedly, uh, and that's probably obvious to say, uh, are thinking wouldn't it be good if you could start by giving us uh, sort of a, a relaxed, a leaning back uh, reflection on where we are now in comparison what you had expected us to be, us expected us to be in 2010. Now we're almost at 2030. We're only seven years left. It's a relatively short period of time. Yeah, well, thanks for that for that opportunity. Yes, in 2010, I was asked to write a report about um, uh, global security trends up to 2030, and um, in the report, I, I I used my basic analytical framework, which is this triangle, which is divided into three big domains of security. The one is the human or social domain. The second is the functional domain, in other words, economics and pol and um, technology. And the third is the ecological domain. And the ecology is at the base of the pyramid. It's really the foundation. Everything else rests on that. Um, and and my, my forecasts in, in 2010 were actually pretty much where we are now. Um, I divided up the, the social domain into two, two what I call vital life systems. And one is the, the, the quality of the leadership of states or whatever, um, and their interactions. And that's basically in, in, in global politics, that means the great power political game. 
And there I, I forecast that we would have a more tense relationship between the great powers um, and uh, more power politics. And there would be a real danger of, of, of the use of war again. And that's pretty much what we're seeing now. Then in the social dimension, um, I, I actually already 10 years earlier, I'd, I'd become aware of the fact that um, uh, the rich country societies are uh, experiencing more and more strain. Uh, declining real incomes, um, declining public services in, in Europe, especially. And this was creating tensions within our societies. And that is certainly what we're seeing now. I mean, Trump and Brexit are, are, are huge uh, examples of that. And there are many others. Uh, then in the functional do domain, <coughs> I was... I, I noted that that um, economic globalization was was underway and that it was a very positive development, but also that it was um, very fragile. And that that's another report I wrote a bit earlier. Yeah, three years earlier, I wrote a report about flow security, um, and that that report I noted that um, globalization is very positive as long as we have good political relations so that everyone can trade with each other and uh, there are no restraints and people are not suspicious and uh, there are no barriers to trade and sanctions and so on. Uh, so I know that it was positive, but that it was, it was fragile. It depended on the political conditions. And since I foresaw that, that we would go towards tensor great power competition, um, I noted that, that danger. And the same thing with our technical infrastructure. Um, there, the news is really good. I mean, we've, we've made it hyper-effective, efficient. But making it hyper-efficient, we've also made it very vulnerable. We've, we've cut away the resilience. Uh, and that's a real danger. And then at the bottom of the pyramid, in the, in the ecological um, dimension, that there, there it was very clear to me, at least already then. And, and I, I'm not an ecologist. I was basing this on, on, on the scientific community that we were facing three big, big problems. And the one was deplete, depleting non-renewable resources, so oil, gas, and minerals. Um, but that, was, that does not really affect the global ecological system as such. It just means we're emptying the, the warehouse. Uh, but the other trend, which is really serious, is that we are um, destroying regional um, habit, uh, habitats that uh, provide us with renewable resources. And that's things like water, breathable air, arable land, fish, and thousands of other things. Basically, humanity is consuming more than the planet can produce. And at the same time, pollution is reducing the capacities, uh, the planet's capacity to produce these things. Uh, and it was very clear that, that the, the, the consequence of that is that we're going to go towards much greater scarcity of natural resources. And that's, of course, also coupled with the increasing the number of uh, the, global, the size of the global population. Uh, in 1980, we were about uh, uh, 5 billion people on the planet. Now we're 8, and it's projected that by 2050 we'll be around 10, but that then it would level off. But still, 10, 10 billion is it's probably more than the planet can actually support. And then the, the, the third trend is, is that some of all the headlines is, is climate change and how we're affecting the global climate system. And, and that, in, in turn, means that we're going to be living in a much more turbulent climate environment. We're also going to face deep changes in our habitats, so rising sea levels and desertification. 
And all of this means both, both increasing scarcity and increasing uh, climate turbulence <coughs> means that the, the functional security level and, and the social security, human security level are going to be increasingly um, impacted and in, unstable. So that, and the, so, so that the three, the three dimensions, of course, they interact intensely, uh, but the interactions are, are, are getting increasingly unstable and, and, and dangerous. So we are moving, I mean, to summarize it, we're moving towards a world uh, which is going to have a, many, many more problems uh, and which is going to be much more difficult um, in many ways. And of course, an important point here is that existential security threats are not just the hard ones, yeah. uh, tanks and bombs, but they can equally be ecological catastrophes or ecological change, which can lead to mass starvation, other effects, or mass destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and they can also be functional and technical. If we have a technical breakdown in our computer systems that, that the technical infrastructure depends on, can have catastrophic effects on, on urban society, and so on and so forth. So, so existential threats are now present in all these three domains. We have, to, we have to watch them all. 30 years ago, before the end of the Cold War, we really just could focus on interstate war. That was the big problem for us, for the rich societies, not for the poor ones. But now we have to focus on all three dimensions and all six vital life systems. Yeah. So uh, before Michael uh, takes the floor on... Uh, his uh, priority questions, just to to say why we think this podcast is so important at this present time. We see a lot of um, um, podcasts, we hear a lot of podcasts, uh, we read a lot of articles which are totally focused on what is topical for the moment. Mm -hmm. so we saw, you know, an endless number of contributions to the debate about the pandemic, before yeah. that about migration, before that about nuclear security, before that about terrorism, before that about um, uh, uh, floods in, in Europe, uh, etc. Uh, but we very seldom see holistic approaches. Uh, uh, we sent to you before this podcast a study from the <coughs> Spanish uh, institute, SIDOP, uh, 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 trying to outline the 10 more, most important issues for 2023. And uh, there as well, you could see that in this billiard ball, which I would be illustrating here, a billiard board picture or image of, a, of what could happen in the international system with these interrelationships between different factors that you just spoke about. It's still one ball which is preeminent, namely the Ukraine ball in this case, which now everyone is talking about. That. And of course, um, we know that many countries in the world, many leaders in the world, many peoples in the world, think that this perspective is not the only perspective that you can have at the present time. There are other problems. Yeah. That's yeah. the view of the Chinese, that's the view of many countries in the so-called former third world Africa and so on. And, and we need to be respectful of that, obviously. And, and it also has to do with ourselves, that we can also not just focus on one issue at a time, although how tempting it is, it is of course. So, so, so uh, from that perspective, I think what you have just said is very, very important. At the same time, of course, it's very general. 
uh, and and people have difficulties to say, okay, so what does it mean? So that's where Michael comes in, I think, because I think he would like now in in dialogue with you to go into some concrete cases on perhaps also regional levels. Over to you, Michael. Yeah, I would uh, start out, uh, Thomas, by uh, adding to what you said, ask you, ask you two questions uh, concerning what you have said so far and what you have written. I mean, uh, the perspective uh, was mainly your big, big and I have to say very impressive study of the 2010 impressive in many ways uh, but uh, if you uh, look at it now uh, and then the prediction capacity of it and you say many things have been confirmed uh, my question would be twofold one is in terms of timing uh, did you uh, did your model that at that time foresee the speed of events such that for example uh, as early as 2022 we, we would have be back in a situation of classical war in Europe that was supposed to be deterred by by nuclear balance, uh, all those things. Mm -hmm. uh, have things moved more quickly than uh, you foresaw in, in modeling uh, things at that time? And, and secondly, also, is your view, uh, as you uh, as you pointed out at that time, is it the dystopian in character such that we are more or less doomed to face all these things, or is that are you sort of including some kind of counteraction that would somehow mitigate the worst of those problems, so that we are not doomed to be overwhelmed by all these uh, added accumulated uh, problems? So it's a question of timing, the question of possible mitigation on the, on the part of an inventive um, human race that will somehow um, invent um, countermeasures. Yeah, that will be my first question to you. Great, great question. Well, in a way, two two questions. First about the, the timing and then about the... Yeah, two the, questions. The, the things. But about the timing, um, no. Um, the the, the problem, I mean, basically what I was doing in 2010 was forecasting. And, and there are different ways of doing it. That, but the method that I used was simply to try and identify the deep trends that were underway in these three dimensions, the human the functional and the ecological dimension, and where they would lead us. Um, and, and that is actually quite a good way of doing it. The problem with it is that it's very hard to, to come with any precise forecasts. What one can say is that these are the big trends, um, and one can identify the way, the way many studies do, 20, 30 possible existential catastrophes, sudden things. Um, but it's very hard to say when they will emerge and which ones will emerge and how they will emerge. So for instance, in my, in my field, we, we've been worrying, worried about pandemics since the mid nineties when there was almost an Ebola break in Washington DC. And there was a guy who wrote a book about it. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, and the people that I, I work with and, the, and myself, we were impressed with that. We finally re realized the contact catastrophic effects that a really serious pandemic can have. Um, but when you try to warn decision makers about that, um, it's very hard for them to make preparations or to take it seriously because it's, first of all, it's one of maybe a dozen scenarios. Secondly, it's very abstract. It seems very science, science fiction-like. And also it would cost money to, to deal with it and, and time. And they don't have money and time. 
So, so basically, it's 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 very hard to present that, especially if you have a dozen others. Um, so, but so when the pandemic COVID nineteen came, um, we were actually very relieved because it was a it was <laughs> compared to some of the others that are out there, it was a very mild pandemic. But it was a brilliant wake up call uh, for really for for all the world societies, including ours, uh, where we realized that we cannot be so complacent about our security that actually major disasters can happen. That happened to be a pandemic, but there could be others. So we have to start again thinking the way we did under, uh, under the Cold War of having greater resilience, national resilience, regional resilience, uh, ability to surprise, survive, manage these things, which of course cost money again. That's why we had many countries, not all, but many countries had, had put that aside and saved that money. But it's very hard to predict exactly when what what will happen but one can predict pretty much the general trends and so the general trends we're experiencing now um they they are in that report from 2010 but but it wasn't able to predict that well in 2016 uh, britain will choose brexit and and uh, president trump will be elected in, in in america those kind of specifics are hard to, to to forecast in the long run but the fact that we would have much greater domestic uh, tensions in these countries that one could identify. And then one can extrapolate, well, what, what kind of consequences will that have? And in the first stage, it will be that the voters will start voting for more extreme politicians and, and, and leave the mainstream because they've lost faith in them. Um, and then the next stage, of course, is that if, if it still doesn't get better, then that you could have a violent revolution, violent domestic opposition. So, so that that's what one can forecast. Then about about the about the positive things. Yes, absolutely. Um, what human history we find is always an interaction between disasters and and then human resilience and ingenuity. And two of the the tools that we have to deal with the coming crisis, especially the ecological crisis. Um, the one is uh, technology. Uh, to find technologies which damage the global ecosystem, which do less damage to the global ecosystem, um, and 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 th that is something that humans are very good at. The other one is regulation, which is basically politics, which is regulating the way we behave so that we will damage the global ecosystem less, or that we will have less political tensions and wars. Um, and that one doesn't look very good for the time being. That's that's the problem. If we look at COP, the different uh, global climate conferences, um, the one in Egypt was was really poor. The one in Canada was much better, the more recent one. Um, but we're always a little bit behind the curve. And the reason is very clear. To mitigate the the damage to the global ecosystem costs a lot of money. Uh, at the same and 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 it means that that politicians will may have to take decisions that are going to be uncomfortable for the voters. Um, and at the same time, as as we're living in societies where the voters already have a lot of things that they're complaining about, so it's difficult for them to take uh, decisions that 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 focus primarily on on protecting the global ecosystem, <clears throat> which 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 increase the tensions uh, domestically. So that, that is not really looking very good. And the same thing when it comes to, to the global political relations between the great powers and between the rich and poor parts of the world. 
right now we 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 see a fragmentation there. We don't really see a, a coming together. That doesn't mean <coughs> that it's going to be inevitable. Uh, there could come a point when when things will turn, but for the time being, it's it's looking quite tense. And of course, here China is really the pivotal the pivotal power uh, under Xi Jinping. It's it's a it's a it's a fairly hostile uh, dictatorship. Uh, which is which is willing to sacrifice globalization to some extent in order to increase the Chinese power and and Xi Jinping's power, uh, but it's not impossible that we'll go back to a China which is more more of a global team player. Uh, but that would be a, uh, have to be under another regime. That depends very much on the domestic development in China, because what's, the the prosperity of China is all built on Deng Xiaoping's liberalization but now Xi Jinping is increasingly tightening that and that is not entirely popular in China either so if mm. there is a regime change in, in China that goes back to a more liberal uh, regime uh, then we could have a, a slightly different relationship with China and then it would be much more possible to address these global challenges together but right now it looks pretty dark and and the the, the main the main reason why I'm very pessimistic about the future is, is the ecological dimension. According to the scientific community, we, we can't stop the decline anymore. We can, at best, we can try and slow it down and reduce its impact, but we can't stop it at least this century. And that, and that is really the foundation for everything, because when we get scarcer natural resources in a more turbulent climate system, uh, it is going to create huge stress on our technical, economic, and social uh, systems. I guess so. you're saying also that uh, you have a sort of a dual possibility here with increasing strains uh, facing a common enemy or common huge problems. You would expect both perhaps that humanity would uh, find it easier to or necessary to cooperate because it's really facing like uh, an asteroid crashing on the earth then it would somehow mm reduce uh, tensions right <laughs> on the other hand the effects would uh, with the increased competition for scarce resources you have a mm. fragmentation mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so i mean it may work both ways and it takes clever leadership thomas i uh, i was uh, encouraged by largely to raise uh, another sort of aspect to all this um but I, I, or i should add first that you have also, don't you, the, the problem of whether and to what extent liberal democracies can deal with problems like these because of, uh, as you say, voters and the next elections and and uh, more more irrational motives uh, necessarily being part of liberal democracy. So so you have that that aspect also, the threats to liberal democracies. And then you're looking at the U.S., not least, I guess, uh, in, in these terms. But on the on the, uh, I, I would like to challenge you now with uh, uh, some experiences from my study of history, which I started in my academic life. I remember the H. H. Carr's uh, big uh, general history of the of the Western world, and he ended up in the fifties saying that whereas everything looks very dark, but that is from the Western point of view with all the problems. But if you look at it from the point of view of uh, former colonies, maybe the land is rather rising. He, he ended up, and I found that very compelling, I remember, at that time. I, I did my PhD, not PhD, I did my one of my uh, studies as a historian, his, historian, study of history. I wrote about um, 
uh, about Toynbee and his uh, study of history mm -hmm. and the way he tried to make a model for the whole, for, for the entire history of the world, mm -hmm. in a way. And he was criticized, of course, for uh, doing overdoing that. And then, uh, so I, by mentioning these two cases, uh, I'm raising the question of whether in analyzing all these things, so macro analysis of the world, can it be done uh, or does one need to take into account regional aspects which would make global analysis more difficult? Uh, I mentioned the US, uh, the Americas, that's one thing. You mentioned China, you have Africa. Is it uh, a joint history evolving or does one have to sort of break it down in, in regional terms? Uh, that would be my sort of basic question, do you know? Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> a good <clears throat> The problem here is that we, one, needs, one needs both, but the, but the two pieces don't fit together very well. One needs to have the, the, the big, broad, visionary perspective. And at the same time, one needs to be aware of all the, the, the details. Um, uh, there, there. One, one, one can divide research uh, into two groups, or two. Or they, they, they operate on, 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 on a scale between two extremes. And at the one extreme, we have the essentializers. They are the ones who look for the really big pictures and try to distill essential truths, like Toynbee. Um, and at the other extreme, we have the particularizers, the, the experts in the detailed issues. And um, even historians can be divided about, about this. I've been, I've been working on strategy now for about 10 years for, on a book on that. And um, many historians who, who are also major thinkers about strategy um, are very critical of the big picture. They say uh, that it's, it's, uh, it dumbs down the complexity that each historical situation is, is, is different. Um, uh, but then at the same time, we do need to have that big picture. Because if you're just always particularizing, if you have a microscopic view, you cannot handle the world the way it is now. Up to the end of the Cold War, one could still pretty much specialize. And of course, we still need specialists, but we need to complement them with people who have the big vision. Because all of these different microscopic areas, let's say pandemic, great power politics, whatever, they interact. Um, and they all affect our, our future. So that we also need to have the big picture, the essentializers, and so on. Uh, but we also, we certainly need the experts, the, the detailed experts. The, the, the trick is how one pulls them together, how one can, how one can use the, the specialized expertise of the, of the particularizers and fit that into the really big picture. And, and actually, one, one can do that. I mean, it's just, it shouldn't be that difficult. The problem, again, though, is that, that when you get into the details, then it becomes very hard, really, to, to, to predict uh, exactly what will happen. Because the, the events at that level, at the microscopic level, are very, very difficult to forecast. At the big picture, when you look at the broad, deep trends, then one can, one can, one can forecast pretty much where... where where the currents are taking us, but the details are very hard. are are very hard to work out. I I, I didn't mean to con to contrast the big picture with the the details. I meant to look at the regional level as an intermediary level of of analysis that would be somehow trying to exactly to combine the the details with the big pictures, focusing yeah. on some specifics about about regions. I was yeah, rather we, referring to that. 
Yeah, we do really need that. It's interesting. Um, I, I, I started working in security politics in the early 1980s. And then we had a, a, a branch of academics that was called area studies. Um, and what they did was, it, and one of the and one of the things that I would criticize pretty much is the way that political science has between, become extremely focused on method, and they try to apply strict scientific method to the grand humanities, which we're studying at. Area studies was was not that the, the area studies people. Well, as you know, they were people like like yourselves who would learn the language of a particular let's say, country or area, um, read the literature, uh, travel there and live there with the people, um, get familiar with their religions, all everything that was, was relevant. And these people would get a much more intuitive feeling for a place. And they, and, and they often have been able to, to make quite good predictions. So I remember before the, 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 the Balkan Civil Wars broke out in 1992, most of the journalists who had spent time in the Balkans, they were predicting this already with the, with the death of Tito. They were saying this place is going to fall apart and it's going to be violent. Um, and of course, it was completely politically incorrect because the Cold War was over and I remember the age of peace had begun and so on. So it was very inc 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 uh, politically incorrect to predict that. But they were all, they were very certain about that and they were right. And mm -hmm. these were area specialists. They were not political scientists or things. They, they were simply people who had a really good fingerspitzengefühl for the area. And that sort of area studies is, is what we should, we, we need to reintroduce. We, we, we need to reintroduce the political science methodology aspect and, and, and get back to a more, more deeper, more philosophical approach to these questions. I still think that the region, meaning Africa as a whole or oh. Asia as a whole, as an intermediate level, area studies were more more specific to to certain certain part. Um, Balkans, yes, it's Europe, but it's a problematic part of Europe. So, but I'm I'm not uh, I'm not contradicting you at all. I'm just trying to sort of uh, deepen the discussion now as to what kind of level of analysis uh, wow. seems to be most relevant. And of course, I agree with you that uh, you need to combine uh, everything, and, uh, and it all belongs. But I think regions are important as as foci. Eric, back to you. Yeah. Uh, so I just to take a couple of examples. Uh, personally, what attracts me with your approach is the possibility through a global analysis to see links also between regions. One of the fundamental errors we have committed, and I say we, having worked for the European Union for many years, for instance, participated in many summits and ministerial meetings where we have discussed different crises, is that we haven't seen the links between the regions because we haven't made a proper global analysis. We see that, for instance, already inside uh, Central and Eastern Europe that during the first Ukraine crisis and the Georgia crisis, people were focusing more on Ukraine than on the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. So the European Council spent much more efforts in trying to deal with the problems inside Ukraine than dealing with the holistic situation. Mm. I saw recently a study from FUI, the Swedish uh, Defense Research Institute, uh, saying that uh, the actual footprint of uh, Russia in Africa is very small. 
In fact, contrary to what many people will think, there are not so many Russian uh, interventions in Rome. The Mali thing with the Wagner is, is almost the exception. So uh, the problem is with, with that kind of analysis is that if you just stay there and look at the situation in, in one single African country, you, you, you can miss something, potential changes in the situation which could be monumental as we have seen in the past. Uh, and we, we did have actually 20,000 Russian advisors in Egypt uh, until 1972, just to take one concrete example. You mentioned the issue of money. Uh, well, um, Michael and I, we have in our previous uh, book on, on this, this Strategic Balancing Act, noted that it's a matter of paradigm when you talk about uh, 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 in Sweden, people focused on uh, dealing with the financial crisis at the, in the beginning of the 90s by inter introducing a very strict financial discipline, budgetary discipline, which means that money became something uh, which meant basically a, a couple of percent increase in the budget was already impossible <laughs> because everyone was supposed to get the same. Now, suddenly with the pandemic, uh, we have opened perspectives of investing hundreds of billions of euros, or even thousands of billions of euros in Europe in order to deal with problems which, uh, which uh, have, have suddenly become enormously much bigger than we thought. People say it's a lot of money the Americans are investing in, 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 in Ukraine now. Well, I heard, I think it was Anne Applebaum who said, well, listen, it, it's 5% of the U.S. defense budget, which is in turn 13% of the federal budget. It's peanuts in comparison to, you know, what the Ukrainians are, are doing themselves. In. So everything is relative here. And, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and suddenly enormous changes can take place, as we have seen in Ukraine. And then you, it helps to have a global analysis, which doesn't just focus on individual politicians, you know, you have an explanatory model. Uh, Putin said already in 2003, 2007, uh, so we could expect this to develop. But without a global analysis that puts that into context, it, it is not, it's not enough. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the pieces have to be pulled together and their, and their interactions or synergies have to be pulled together. In an ideal research organization, you would have the, the real uh, specialists either in different issues like war, health, whatever, mm -hmm. and then also in different regions or actually countries. And then you would have a slightly higher level where you have people that, that are looking, let's say, at all of Africa, all of Asia. And then you would have at the top, you would have people who are working with these people and then pulling all the strings together. That's, mm -hmm. what, that's the kind of research organization one would need and that I expect uh, Many of the intelligence agencies, the big ones, do have because they have the resources for that. But we don't see that often in, a, in um, academic uh, research uh, universities and so on. We, one doesn't have that kind of structure. But one, that's, that's exactly what we need because we live in a much more interactive world now. Everything is interacting with everything else uh, very, very dynamically. 
Yeah. Thomas, in terms of uh, optimism, pessimism, and, and mitigation, and uh, <coughs> things that we have talked about so far, I, I mentioned in passing the question of of the of the uh, the role of liberal democracy or liberal democracies, including the U.S., in in dealing with all these things. Are you are you, if I may put it this way, optimistic or pessimistic or or undecided whether there is a future for uh, liberal democracy holding the fort and, and uh, keeping uh, keeping their role? Or are we seeing that the problem load makes it harder and harder to combine that with the, the freedoms of, of and the uh, next elections and so on? And uh, and the capricious nature, therefore, necessarily of of uh, of, of politics. Uh, do we have to be? Uh, can we be optimistic about the resilience of liberal democracy in view of the problem load that you have outlined? Mm. Well, we cannot be complacent about it. I mean, it's very clear now that that uh, liberal democracy is 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 um, under great strain and, in some respects, under great direct attack. Certainly, the Putin regime has been attacking liberal democracy directly for a long time, and, and Xi Jinping uh, is, is no friend of, of, of that either because it threatens his power base at home. So, and if we look at the statistics, there's that, I, I forget the name, but there's a great institute in Yotebori which looks at this. I mean, the trend is not good. The, the number of democratic states and the quality of the, their democracies is, is slowly declining. Um, so on the one hand, we're under deliberate attack by non-democratic regimes. And on the other hand, we, are, we face domestic problems that are undermining our, our democracies. And that's what I mentioned earlier, that, that really since the, since the early 90s, the, the living standards or the living conditions, the economies of, of the richest countries of the world, basically the OECD community, have 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 been um, declining, uh, even if they've been still growing. Um, they've been declining and they've been changing. Uh, so so before before that, when we build up the, the let's say the, the great society, the the, the Folkhemet, as you say in Sweden, uh, in the fifties and sixties, um, we needed normal factory workers, uh, farmers, forest workers, and so on, and they could get decent salaries and and become a middle class. But now the new economy is, is high tech. We really only need about the 10% of the absolute brightest and most creative individuals. And if we don't find them at home, we can import them from any part of the world. And that means that the other 90% of society, they, they still get jobs and, and they still get annual raises in their salaries. But um, it's, it's, it's service jobs, it's servicing others. And what we see then is that the, the increase in wages uh, among the top 10% is increasing drastically. And then the rest, let's say the, about 80% of the society still have wage increases, but very, very low. So we see a rising income gap in, in the richest countries of the world, including Sweden, including uh, yeah, all of the EU countries and, well, most of the EU countries and, and, and North America. And that is creating tensions. It takes a long time. It's, now it's taken 30 years. But now the population is waking up to the fact that um, their lives no longer look as safe and secure as that of their parents. That is the, that is the way they, they compare it. Um, and that's when we start getting phenomena like Trump and, and Brexit. And that's also attack to, attacking democracy. 
because these people are pretty desperate. Uh, they want they want a fix. And then you get more extreme politicians come in, either from left or right, it doesn't matter, promising them uh, everything. They'll never be able to deliver. But because they've lost faith in the in the in the mainstream politicians, they start voting for the for the extremes. And once these extremes come into power, if they can break down the democratic system uh, so that they can stay in power, then they can destroy a country. And the typical example is Venezuela. It was one of Latin America's most prosperous uh, middle class countries until Chavez came along and then Maduro and. Um, they were not able to keep that the economy going. And now it's a, a country, it's a disaster zone. And the same thing risks happening also in, in our countries. Um, if we start getting... You had Bolsonaro in, in, you had Bolsonaro's Brazil example as well. Yeah, Bolsonaro. It could even be Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, the economy mm -hmm. has not been doing so well under him. And then they get more desperate and they, and they manage to get cling on to power and they slowly erode the democratic system but the democratic system itself is based on it can only work if you have a big middle class that is basically satisfied so that they don't want radical changes and the problem we see now is that that there's an increasingly large minority of our societies that are deeply dissatisfied and they are the ones who are who are putting the democratic principles at risk but for for the world to function under rule of law or a rules-based world order, as they say, takes continued Pax Americana, right? And so a lot of these things pertain to the fate of the U.S. democracy. Are you, uh, are you moderately, uh, I mean, how do you see the U.S. evolving as the leader of the free, free world and therefore the skeleton of a rules-based world order in a, in a, trend towards multipolar world order, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, the, th the thing is that the Chinese, and, um, or at least Xi Jinping and the Putin regime and many other dictatorial regimes would not agree. <laughs> or in fact, a big part of their agenda is based precisely on removing the American Pax Americana. Yes. So, but, so, so we have that problem already, that, that there are different worldviews and visions for the world and they're competing now for the world. But then when he, but but I completely agree with you. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the, the liberal civilization, the, the open society, is really our humanity's only way forward because it liberates the human spirit. And that means that we will have the tools and the motivation and the resources to address the problems that we face. Uh, what one sees time and again in dictatorships, there are exceptions, but is is that the more you oppress the people, um, the the worse the, the the country goes, the worse economy is, the worse technology is, and so on. Joseph Brodsky was asked once; um, he gave a brilliant answer. He was asked, um, "What happens to a country that kills its poets?" And he answered, "It goes stupid." And this is precisely the problem: when you start oppressing the human spirit, then you end up in the end with with a mass of oppressed zombies. And that kind of societies can't get anywhere. So, so I'm a deep believer in the liberal societies. We need it. If, if, if humanity is going to survive on the planet, we need it. But then, but then we, are, we are right now crumbling. Uh, we are under attack. And the United States, as you say, is, is absolutely is the linchpin of the, the, liberal, the global liberal community. Uh, without the U.S., um, the EU would be in, in a lot of trouble, even though the EU is, 
is economically and technically very, very powerful. It's not a not strong politically, but so we need the EU. We we need the United States. But where the US is going, well, that is perhaps the big $64 question. It's the big question in the room. Um, and the and the key, well, what well, one of the first stepping stones on that road will be the next American presidential elections. Um, how that there's two two questions linked to that. One is will an extreme uh, politician be elected as a president, sim either Trump or someone similar to Trump. And that in itself could already be disastrous enough because these people are not really competent to deal with the problems and they're not democratically minded. So that's, that's a, we saw that under Trump, a huge danger. And the other problem is if, if, if we do get a, a mainstream politician elected, um, how will the roughly 30% of the American voters who are, are, are polled as being deeply, deeply dissatisfied and distrustful of the system, how will they react? Will, will we start seeing more violent resistance to the, the election outcome? And how will that Amer affect American society? That can, again, have different roll-on effects. And, and we just don't know what, what, what will happen in 2024 uh, in the US, but it's a pivotal question. It's a pivotal question. I agree. Not really. Yeah. Yes. Um, if you are um, satisfied, Michael, on this track, I would uh, propose that we move to a final track uh, in the podcast, namely going back to the issue of flow security, uh, which is going to be an extremely important question in many countries, not least in Sweden, as we are trying to develop a system both for crisis response crisis management, and at the same time also civil defense organization in our country, which has basically been scrapped after, after, the, after the Cold War. And here concepts play a large and important role. You have written about it very early, even before 2010, I understand you said. Um, uh, we have tried to, to write about it, Michael and I, in our last book, uh, we are, I have written about it in following it from the inside in the EU structures from uh, the year 2000 when I was in Brussels for seven years, responsible for the unit uh, which was coordinating this on the external side. And um, uh, the problem we had basically um, in, our, in our book, which we try to address, was um, uh, the scope of the concept, flow security. Because we saw that Bratberg and others who wrote a book about flow security in the US a couple of years back, mainly focused on the positive side of the flows, so say protecting yeah. the good flows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we thought, and I wrote in my book, that we need to include the negative flows. And we also need to take up the point that Carl Bildt uh, made in his Project Syndicate article from 2030, that our flows are organic. So one and the same flow can be both good and bad in a sense, that uh, contain problems. In the EU, we started tracking containers, for instance, in the, in the early 2000s, uh, with the support of... of uh, of uh, the director general where I was working, we tracked the movements of containers 
which were supposed to contain good, uh, you know, trading stuff that was necessary, but where we could detect through artificial intelligence suspicious movements, which could indicate either a transportation of WMD material or by drugs or organized crime, other or, or even things to be used for terrorism. In the G8, uh, people started uh, fairly on early on in the uh, after the millennium, after 9/11, to to work on terrorism and organized crime as one set of one coherent set of uh, of bad or dangerous flows, which was integrate in integrate integrated in financial uh, system corruption and all that, and so. <clears throat> But still, we have a lot of tension in the system, also in our own country, in Sweden now. Uh, some people think that the military flow security issue should be dealt separately from the civilian ones. So the coastal guard should not be mixed up with the Navy and so forth. Uh, one should be careful about that. Uh, migration, uh, Michael and I, we have spoken a lot. Maybe, maybe you want to say a word about that after I finished, Michael. Uh, migration has many dimensions, and and uh, what's inside the 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 the, the legalized flows, uh, the regular migration, uh, uh, trafficking, and all that. Uh, financial flows are good, but contain many problematic uh, things. So, so the question: How do you want to administrate all this? Uh, I know that I listened to your colleague Robert Egnell recently who said we need one toolbox, uh, both for civil defense and crisis response. And many people say, oh, it's not possible, constitutionally not possible, etc. So it's a huge, um, both administrative, financial, and I would say conceptual issue that needs to be addressed again in order for us to get a holistic uh, perspective on this. Michael, do you want to fill in something? No, just to say uh, then, uh, you made a sort of uh, comprehensive introduction, that's fine. Uh, to add that, uh, I think we can agree, uh, Thomas, that uh, flow security is not only about interest, but it's also about values. Uh, and because of how you deal with the positive and negative sides, or black or gray, or whatever colors you would put on it. It is also a question of, of values. And here, of course, migration is a key example of this, that you are somehow you, you're promoting your interest, but you have to be based also on values. And uh, you cannot simply build the Fest of Europa to deal with migration. But it seems to be a huge uh challenge for the for 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 europe and for the european union to to balance things also compatible with, with values so i just wanted to add this dimension as well yeah well there's 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 a lot to to address here i'll i'll i'll, I'll try and do what but what, what i what i remember but just to take the last thing first uh the pressure from uncontrolled human flows uh which is one of the the darker sides of, of flow security um this this is this is something that one could quite easily identify 20 years ago um but it was politically incorrect mm. uh to draw the conclusion well what do you do if there are more people trying to come into europe than europe can handle do you build camps <laughs> do you put up walls um what do you do 
And that was so unpalatable that it was almost impossible to, to raise this. And I remember that because I wrote an article for, with the EU, actually, analyzing this in 2011, and, and, and there, were, there were many strong reactions against it. Uh, and I can understand them. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a nice thing to consider. But then, of course, 2015 came when we had uh, over a million um, asylum seekers flooding into Europe, and it was a real problem. Um, so, so that just illustrates one of the challenges of forecasting is that when you when you come up with politically incorrect scenarios, it's very hard also for the decision makers to do anything about them. Uh, and another example of that: how to get things together. Uh, terrorism was for a long time in the European Union an intergovernmental issue, which could only be dealt with by member states in the Council through consensus and could not be given major budgets in order to, 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 to do something about it. Colin Powell, when coming to Europe after 9-11, uh, was not interested to talk to those parts of, of, of the EU who didn't have any money. He went directly to the Commission, uh, uh, tried to see if he could find something from the first pillar, you know. And, and, and that's where we started to integrate organized crime into terrorism and working to, to try to get a coherent perspective on these things. So uh, what I was trying to illustrate was the... Um, the difficulty to get uh, a holistic, a comprehensive approach to flow security due to bureaucratic, financial, value-based, what have you. And the question is, how can we come over those problems? Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. That also goes back to your point about a single toolbox or not. Um, the key issue here is that we are used to thinking of of preparing or, or protecting our security by planning for it. We try to identify the problem and then we, we, we try to plan how we're going to either defuse it before it becomes a real problem or else deal with it if it does become a real problem. But, but in today's world, we, we can foresee 30 different catastrophes. But, but as I mentioned earlier, we can't say when, which will arrive and when they will arrive. So that Plan-based security preparations are very limited. Um, usually we do them, or yeah, so far we've only done them after something has happened. Russian mm -hmm. invasion of Ukraine or pandemic or the human flood into Europe and so on. <clears throat> and what we need instead actually is, is a rapid ability to, to, to react, to adapt to something surprising that happens. Um, and that, that, that is very different from plan-based security because plan-based security becomes pretty bureau bureaucratic uh, with vested interests and with, with, with narrow preparations and, and scenarios. Um, an ability to, to rapidly uh, react, the agility, um, is something very different. And, and, and for that, we need um, governance systems that are quite different from the from the big bureaucratic systems that we have now. Um, it can it can be developed partly by having different readiness levels. So you legislate so that you can go into a more nuanced reaction where you have where the different parts have more more ability to to react, um, even again, going against values. Because one of the problems in a in a catastrophe is you're going to have to break the peacetime values if you're going to survive. There are things one will have to sacrifice, or there will be wicked problems that one will have to answer where there are no good solutions. And that's in a catastrophe. So, so 
So it, it demands a different mindset. And that's something that we need to build into our, our systems. It's not just a question of, of planning and building a toolbox. We need to have several toolboxes that can rapidly be adapted to deal with different contingencies. Uh, some countries have that. Um, usually countries that, that, that perceive some kind of a big threat. So for instance, with COVID-19, uh, Finland, Israel, South Korea, Taiwan, they could very rapidly organize their societies to try and deal with uh, the pandemic because they still had total defense systems that they could apply. So they had stores of personal safety equipment, um, whatever you needed. Um, but most countries didn't have that anymore because it cost money and so they discarded it. Um, but the point here is that, that when you have a general readiness to deal with crises, then it, it, it really should not be focused on a, one particular contingency. It can be adapted imperfectly, but better adapted to a whole range of different crises than if you're focused on just one scenario and, and you're stuck on that. And that's what we need to introduce in our, in our systems is, is a much greater flexibility to deal with um, surprising events. Um, and if the, I may uh, add here, yeah. Thomas, uh, because you're, you're, what you're saying now reminds me, of course, of the big earthquake now in, in Turkey, Syria, and uh, Italy has, is used to having earthquakes. So they have a fantastic organization, uh, envied by many. Uh, I remember at the time of the tsunami in 2004, and the Italians were there much more quickly than, than we were, for example, yeah. uh, although it affected so many sw uh, Swedish casualties at the time. Mm -hmm. So you have that, uh, and it's a, s a single readiness in their case. Uh, in, in the case of Turkey, of course, obviously failing, but still uh, they they will have to invest in that because they are in a safe country. And now you're saying that one must have a multi-purpose multi uh, functioning degree readiness. That leads me to the question of, def of security strategies, which is... a uh, Something we in Sweden now have a have a national security council and a, a security advisor, and of course this is meant to be a, an enhancement of Swedish capacities. It takes, however, to deal with the difficult question of how do you quickly formulate a, a, a security strategy which is relevant to the real threats in, in various time frames. I am convinced, also from from my point of view, that. The existing uh, security documents, security strategy documents of the EU, of the of the US, of of NATO, they will need to be revised even further to what was done last year because of uh, the eventfulness of developments nowadays, in terms of uh, the nuclear dimension of 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 of, uh, of deterrence, uh, for example. So uh, do you see it's uh, meaningful and possible to, to uh, abide by what you just said in terms of security strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all strategy rests on, contains really two fundamental elements, um, at least at the, at, the, at the operational level of strategy. And the one is stacking the cards in your favor. So you try and prepare conditions as far as possible in your favor, whatever that may be. Um, and the other one is almost the opposite, and that is dancing with uncertainty, dancing with the unexpected. So on the one hand, you try and prepare the terrain so it's as favorable to your ends as possible. On the other hand, you have to be prepared for surprises and have the ability to 
react and respond to them as best as possible. And that's, that's really are the two elements of strategy. Um, and then, and, and the problem is that it takes two very different personal, pers- personality types to deal with this. So in peacetime, you'll have the, the, the people being promoted and getting ahead who are more in the planning mindset. Then when the crisis comes and you have to deal with it, often in many cases, these people will be completely the wrong people to handle it. And you'll need very different personalities. Then you have to find them. But we have to somehow we have to find a way to integrate these two fundamental parts of, of, of strategy um, uh, into our system. Okay. Yeah. And it also it also goes back a little bit to this question about just to take that example, whether the Coast Guard should be part of the Navy or not part of the Navy. Uh, one can very well argue that, OK, they should be separate. But at some place in the planning and in the in the preparation process, you need to reach a level where you plan for how can you integrate them? How can you use them together? And that can filter down then, even if under normal circumstances, they would operate separately and they would deal with different issues. Under unnormal, extraordinary circumstances, you may have to integrate them. Uh, and then you have to have a readiness for that. And that's what we have to start building in, in into our system. And that's just one example. But I mean, civil military interface, it's exactly the same thing. If we face a major catastrophe, we are going to have to try Sweden as a, as a country and society will have to mobilize all the resources at its disposal. And that includes very, very much the, the civilian uh, private sector. So, so at some point in the planning level, you have to be able to pull these things together yeah. and prepare for that. And you have to have maybe the big the bosses of, of these organizations meeting and, and so on. And actually, that's what we had in the Cold War. The Swedish total defense system was was very much built <clears throat> on those. Yeah, if I you mean, compare, uh, if you com- sorry, Logic, please go ahead. No, I was just going to add the question: Do you, do you think Finland and, and Sweden are differently sort of uh, differently uh, equipped to deal with the uh, exigencies of of because of your war experience, etc., etc., mm-hmm. where we have been sort of living in peacetime so long? Is 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 that a is that a big difference? Huge. There's a huge difference. Uh, despite the fact that the, the countries are very similar in many ways um, mm. and, and that, uh, that Finland fortunately um, became part of the Western liberal community um, and democratic, legal and independent judiciary and so on. Uh, but, 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 but then when you get down to the psyche, it's fundamentally different for, for the reasons that you mentioned. Actually, that's one reason is the history. Um, Finland fought uh, War of Independence, 1917-18, Winter War against Russia, 39-40, and then the Continuation War, 41-44, and then a war in Lapland to to get the Germans out of Lapland. Um, And then, actually, the Cold War was Mm -hmm. was also contributed to this difference in, in a big way because it meant that for some 40 years, Finland was living with a knife at their throat. And uh, Finland became learned. It was really the most postgraduate school you could go to on dealing with power politics uh, and, uh, and uh, keeping a good face in an, in an evil circumstance, uh, as, as one would say, translated from Swedish. Um, and the other factor that's important for Finland, where it's different from Sweden, is that Finland has been very poor. Until the 70s and 80s, Finland was extremely poor, whereas Sweden has been um, an empire in the past. Mm. Uh, and was very prosperous for much of the 20th century. 
Um, and the poverty in Finland has also been, because it means that you're not always looking for the perfect solution. You realize that um, there are no perfect solutions, that the sufficiently good is enough, provided you can get that. And it, it makes the, the Finnish system much smaller and much more pragmatic. It's very pragmatic. It's very small. It's very personal. Everyone knows each other. And there's a basic inclination to cooperate. Um, it's not based on sort of cutthroat, zero-sum competition, the way it, sometimes it is, is in Sweden. And that can also be very dynamic. Mm-hmm. But in Finland, it's more, more cooperative. Uh, so it's, 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 it's very pragmatic. Um, it's uh, small. People know each other. And they're used to taking decisions under difficult circumstances. And, and that's, that's a big difference from, from, from Sweden. Okay. Yeah, well, um, it's music to my ears uh, to hear this, uh, reminding me of my posting in Finland in the early 80s, uh, where I got established many f- friendships with people who are still important in, in Finnish security policy. Uh, still remember my landlord in Edelfelt in Tie Neljetoista, who told me that he ate his first banana in the 1955. Mm-hmm. I mean, to show how poor the country actually was for a very long time. And still, when I was posted there, it was not a rich country in comparison to Sweden. I also have a final comment from my side, because we are now over an hour is that um, the notion that you need to prepare for different contingencies within one system, uh, so to say, is, was something was very important in the discussion in the EU after 9-11. There were, I participated in many discussions about, okay, which will be the next crisis? Mm-hmm. So we had the tsunami, we had the floodings, etc. cetera. Uh, and we, we understood very soon that it was not possible to prepare just for one contingency. You have to look at many, many different, different. And there you come back to the governance issue. Uh, the European Union has uh, benefited a lot from ha- having a European Council meeting relatively frequently, where people are thinking out of the box mm-hmm. at the highest level, being able to order their, uh, their, um, uh, their services to do things which uh, is out of the box, basically. As Ilva Johansson said in the Salem conference recently, the commissioner for internal affairs, you know, some of the things we did during the pandemic in the EU was not totally based, had did not have a clear legal basis in the EU treaties. You know, so you had to do things. And our problem now, to, to close from my side, uh, the problem which I think also Michael addressed when he took up the value idea is that we don't have a global governance. We have a, a governance of the free world, which works fairly well now with uh, with the transatlantic cooperation. We, we are happy, more or less, with the way it's developed uh, under Biden. Uh, even some analysts from the American side are quite proud about the way the American administration has been handling uh, the the uh, Ukraine war, but we don't know, as you said, what will happen in the election in two thousand twenty four. So the whole this holistic perspective is is extremely important for us all, and I thank you for my part very much for you willing to share your wisdom about these things. 
Let yes. me add before you finish, uh, Thomas, that uh, of course the, the NATO is now in in its uh, concept talking about the 360 uh, degree perspective, which is somehow a reminder again. Easier said than done, perhaps, but it, it at least it is said. And then you have the question also of uh, do we have global uh, governance? Well, we had the we do have the UN, but its uh, Security Council is heavily uh, in, impacted now by the Ukraine crisis and the non-agreement among the permanent members, so they cannot decide anything relevant. Uh, is that a big? Uh, does it mean that the UN is finished? No, of course not. You still have the. The expert um, the agencies and you have your, the General Assembly for normative purposes. And then the question of the OSC and the, its uh, lasting value or if, if it can be revitalized. In a, it's it's huge question. And I think, uh, and I guess you would agree with this, that uh, it's a question of, of having those institutions survive for better times because we still need those institutions at, at some mm -hmm. stage. On, uh, while we're dealing with the acute uh, problems of the Ukraine war. So that would be my, my final comment to, to you. So All right. Well, thank you very much for, 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 for being able to participate here. My, my final comment would be that, that when it comes to this, really, we're living in an age of, of deep historical transition. Uh, both global great power politics are transforming. New actors are emerging. They want a seat at the table. Um, our societies are transitioning deeply now, and that's part of the reason why we have this turbulence. And then, of course, we have we have a massive transition uh, when it comes to science and technology, just zooming ahead. And then we have the ecological uh, decline, global decline, and and all of these factors are coming together to 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 lead to a very very turbulent period in human history. And and of, and global governance is absolutely necessary, but but right now it's it seems to be very very far away, mm. uh, simply because there are so many new tensions, new actors uh, emerging uh, that that the old organizations that you mentioned, which were really all post World War II constructs, basically of the Atlantic Community and and the Soviet Union, um, they and I completely agree with you. We desperately need them. We desperately need whatever we can to work together uh, across across the, globally, uh, but they're not entirely adapted to the new conditions. So something new is going to have to emerge. The G20 is a typical example of something new that has emerged, um, and, the, and it will emerge. But the tension, the tensions that are pulling us apart and 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 creating uh, violent conflicts, um, they are they are very great. So I'm I'm quite. I'm pretty sure that in the coming two decades, uh, things will probably get more violent and more tense and more difficult rather than better. Yeah. Closing off this, this note. Yeah, uh, closing off this on uh, I cannot resist by having, having to quote you. I have to quote you, uh, showing the value of your uh, forecasting skills. Uh, the ACAS podcast you did in 2016, which is still on the internet, there you say, apropos whether Sweden should apply to join NATO or not. Well, I, that you understand that Sweden has decided not to apply for uh, to join NATO, uh, but things can change. <laughs> yes, they do. These are chance, please, the same but not in this case. Okay. Thank you so much.